Hi, this is Bill Cates, and welcome to your May edition of Voices of Experience. I recently attended the CSP CPAE Summit in Dallas, Texas, and I want to thank and applaud Randy Pennington and Sarah Michelle for putting together a program of tremendous value. Another great reason to earn your CSP. First up this month is Jill Conrath, author of Selling to Big Companies and Snap Selling. This is her fourth of six segments, each building on the one before, about how to sell to large corporations. Jill Conrath is with me again, helping us reach and sell to these large corporations. Jill, what are some of the biggest mistakes that the uh, members of NSA, experts who speak, make in trying to reach and capture the attention of these corporate decision makers? Perhaps the biggest mistake that I see speakers make is the failure or the inability to talk about what they do in the language of the decision maker. Most of them talk about what they do in terms of what they're speaking about. They talk about the kind of projects that they do. They might talk about their unique methodologies, their state-of-the-art, leading-edge um, Uh, approaches to solving problems, but that's not what decision makers are looking for. They're actually sitting there trying to think about how they're going to reach their business objectives. And so what we need to talk about is, is the words that they would use to describe what's important to them. And I think the first thing that really helps speakers to do this is to do an analysis of the kind of position that they're calling on. For example, if they're calling on the safety director, or if they're calling on the VP of sales, or they're calling on the director of IT. They need to do an analysis of this person in terms of, you know, what are they responsible for? Um, what are their business objectives and what are they trying to achieve? What strategies do they have in place to try to reach these objectives this coming year? Um, they also need to take a look at what is their typical status quo that they're dealing with because really we're fighting the status quo and we're competing against that more than anything else. And uh, that is our competition, not any other speaker, by the way. And so they really need to get inside their decision maker's head. This I, I prepared a form for that. It's on my website, snapselling.com. If people go there, they can sign up and get the buyer's matrix, which really they can use to outline and understand the um, issues that their customers are facing. This is really important to do, and I really want to stress why it's necessary. Because until you can talk the language of your decision maker, you're not going to get your foot in the door. You're a speaker. You're you know they don't need a speaker. They don't need a trainer. They need somebody who understands their business issues. And so this is really the place to start. And and it's what I call being able to clearly articulate your value proposition. And a value proposition is is a clear statement about the business outcomes that you provide. What it includes is three things. It it includes first of all the business objective that you're trying that your client is trying to reach and and it would be like they are trying to reduce costs or they're trying to reduce turnover or they're trying to eliminate customer care calls but you'll notice that that business objective has two things it has what it is that the customers measure that the prospect is measured on and, and secondarily it has a movement something is trying you need they're trying to increase or decrease speed things up or slow things down and until you can talk about what you do it with a word that shows movement you're not talking about a value proposition and the best value propositions are ones that do have metrics, if at all possible. And metrics such as we were able to reduce time to market by 22%. Or one of my recent clients was able to increase their penetration of major accounts 87.2% in three months. And these are these. this is the language that your decision makers waiting to hear. They just really want to know that you can work on their issues and their goals. And when people start doing that, they start seeing fundamentally different results in their conversations with people. Because 
because right now they're calling people up and they're they're saying, hi, this is Jill. I'm a speaker on this or I work in this area. I'd like to find out about your company. And they're deleted and they're deleted in, in five seconds. And so what they really need to do in order to not be deleted and to be um, engaging the prospect is they really need to be clear on the outcomes that they provide. And they need to state it in the language that their customer would use as opposed to what they want to say to describe themselves. So your buyer's matrix will actually help us, the members of NSA, figure that out? Yeah, the buyer's matrix will help you ask the right questions. You'll still have to do your own research, but it'll give you the information that you need. And also, when they go to my website and and snapselling.com, they can also get a value proposition generator that'll show them how to create their own value proposition and pull it together. And these are the kind of resources that all speakers need right now. Beautiful. Thank you, Joe. A buyer's matrix and a value proposition generator. Two great tools for us to work into our business. Thank you, Jill. The theme of this year's convention in Anaheim is Influence 11, and it promises to be a great program. Back with me are both Randy Gage, the chair of our annual convention, and Theo Andros, in charge of the breakout sessions, to tell us more about the program. Randy, last time we talked, you told us a little bit about how the convention this summer is going to be different, making it extremely relevant to everybody who attends to make sure we walk away with a lot of great ideas to help us build our business and be better speakers. And you alluded to the fact that you have some big names coming, some folks that uh, we all would look forward to learning from. Can you drop a few names to get us excited? Yeah, I can tell you it'll be the first time ever that Glenna Salisbury is speaking uh, her uh, keynote from the main platform. She'll be actually our opening uh, general session. We've got Steve Rizzo, who will be doing a, a special program like they have never seen before at NSA. Scott McKean will be doing a special program like has never been seen at an NSA convention before. Ian Percy has put together a team of people and be doing a very uh, intriguing information session like has never been done before at NSA. And then we're going to be doing some master classes where people will be kind of going behind the scenes, showing you what it, what the some of the greatest platform platform professionals in our space, how they'll be, they'll actually be coaching people and, and doing this from the main stage, kind of like you see in opera or acting where you have master classes. And we've got Terry Shodin doing one of those. She's simply amazing in terms of communication. Les Brown is doing one of those. He's probably as good on the platform as anybody you've ever seen. Larry Winget will be doing how he went from NSA to ABC and NBC and CNN and, you know, turned out some best-selling books and just became a media superstar. We've got Nito Cobain doing a kind of behind-the-scenes thing, uh, talking with the people who will be doing the keynotes and uh, taking us behind the curtain on how they came about. Uh, it's just amazing people, really the best of the best. That's just at least I want to give you a little teaser of some of the amazing people we're going to have. Dear Andros, when we talked last time about the summer convention in Anaheim, you talked to us about all the wonderful speakers, presenters that will be at the breakout sessions and some quality things coming, I can tell. But going to the convention is more than about the sessions and the presenters, isn't it? Absolutely, Bill. You know, the, the, the funny thing is I just came from the unconference in Atlanta where Neen and Gina put together a phenomenal program. And the funny thing is I didn't even want to go. 
But once I got there, I didn't want to leave. And the real value of these conventions and these conferences is not just the programs, but it's the conversations and connections that you make once you're there. And, you know, a friend of mine teased me once that NSA is my cult, but the reality is, is that NSA is my tribe, my community. And we come together for, for fellowship and for friendship, and, but we also do a lot of business together. And from these conferences, you establish strategic alliances and promotional partnerships. You expand your referral network, and it's not just to get gigs, but oftentimes to give gigs. And you share media contacts and publishing resources. You collaborate on material. And you know, the greatest value of these conferences oftentimes exists outside of the meeting rooms and the relationships that you uh, cultivate and, and, uh, and nurture and, and in many cases rekindle. So, Theo, what you're saying is that even though we get a lot of great ideas from the different presentations, we can actually form relationships with members of NSA in between the presentations or maybe just after the presentation is over and you're sitting next to someone and the next thing you know that's leading to the opportunity for business or collaboration on products. I know personally I've collaborated with several NSA members on specific products that are actually making us money. One of my largest contracts that I've ever gotten came from an NSA member. So even though NSA doesn't exist to bring you business, it's not a bureau per se, then some people make that mistake, but it does actually lead to to revenue generation. Uh, I know you had some specific things happen just at the unconference for yourself. You're absolutely right, and I'll tell you, I can trace back every major piece of, of business or opportunity that I've enjoyed in nearly 20 years of doing this goes back to a relationship that I established through NSA. And we've been back less than a week from the unconference in Atlanta, and already I've had two firm um, requests for engagements. I've had a request for an article submission. I've had an introduction to a media contact. And these all came from people I met at the unconference, either before or after a session, at a meal function, in a hallway. I never, ever expected that that would come out of this experience, but that's one of, that's one of the great um, benefits of being part of this organization is that we all come together to help and support each other, and it's more than just the sessions. It really is the relationships that you, uh, that you nurture at these conferences that, uh, that make it worth going every year. Theo, this is great because now we really get the full picture of what the convention is all about, isn't it? It's it's the sessions and it's everything in between. And you know, I, I got to tell you, it's it's also there's something to be said. You know, so many of us are 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 lone wolves in this business. We're out there doing what we do, and I've heard it said before that the speaking business can be somewhat of a lonely business, being out on the road, and and most people in our lives don't really understand what we do. And one of the great values of convention is to come together and really support each other. And, you know, some of, of my closest, um, dearest friends have come out of the relationships that I've established at, uh, at NSA. And uh, that, for me, has been one of the great benefits of being a part of this organization. If you haven't already registered for the summer convention in Anaheim, I urge you to grab a seat and book your hotel before we fill up. The dates are July 30th through August 2nd. To learn more and to register, simply go to influence.org. That's influence.org. Or you can go to the regular NSA homepage and click on the annual convention link. I'll see you there. Over the last three months, management consultant Zamira Jones has talked to us about hiring and managing employees. We shift gears this month to tap into his vast experience in the radio business. Now, Zamira, we're going to tap into another part of your expertise, which is truly you know, being in the radio business and managing the talent and being on air, I guess we'll say. 
so many of our members, you know, are asked to appear on radio shows, both terrestrial, which is the broadcast medium, right, and uh, internet shows, which are appearing quite a bit these days. What tips do you have to, uh, for our members, uh, our experts who speak for the medium of radio, specifically as a guest? Radio, talk radio, talking into a microphone feels like it's ubiquitous, like everyone can do it who can talk. And it's a dangerous assumption. I often say that radio is the lowest paid easy work or the highest paid hard work you're going to find. If you want a great radio show, it is hard work. It is easy to get in front of a microphone and just talk. You may feel that your expertise is enough to warrant the dignity of the microphone, but it's a big mistake. Preparation is king in doing a great radio show as a host and especially as a guest where you're not in control of the microphone. The first thing you want to do is know the station they're on, know the audience that they target, have an idea of what the super core of that audience is. Every format has a super core. That means the average news talk station reaches adults 2554. The average classic rock station reaches adults 2554. The average uh, adult contemporary station reaches adults 2554. Well, you kind of get the idea here. But each one of them has a different super core. That means where the largest concentration of audiences over a 10-year period. A news talk station will, on average, have the largest concentration over a 10-year period between 50 and 60. 45 to 55 for some news stations the same way. A, a classic rock station will be 10 years younger, but male skewing, 60, 65, 70%. An adult contemporary station will be female skewing. 35 to 44 might be that super core. So you want to make sure that you have that in mind and the time of day of your show and the geographic focus of, of the show if it's in one market. Having all those in mind and if, if at all possible, making your content um, demographic and geographic and psychographic specific to that time and place. One of the things that I share is have a strategy, a system of putting your information out. Now, often because we are speakers, we have a natural crescendo that we build to and then bang at the end. Well, the radio business is the exact opposite. The punchline comes first in a great radio show. You want to get to the juice immediately. You're only centimeters away from losing the audience. The difference between where you are on the dial and the next station is about three centimeters. It doesn't take much to lose them. So you need to hit them immediately. So one of the things I would share is an acronym that I create, and I love to use acronyms to make give you an easy handle. The acronym that I use is called B. B-E-E. -E. Big fat claim, explain example. Big fat claim, explain example. If you use that, come on strong with a targeted 
big fat claim of what you're about to share with your audience. And, and you're a speaker, so you know how to give it some bite and some edge. And then explain it and then give an example. If you do that and then come back with the next one, big fat claim, explain example. And just repeat that. You want to give your information in short nuggets, not long conversations. Talk to me about being edgy, being controversial, as opposed to being not that way, kind of, you know, likable, nice person. Edge is often used in uh, in the lowest common denominator way, uh, meaning blue humor or something blue or, or threatening. I choose to use a more elegant description. Edge is really the point in time when states change. That's edge. Here's what I mean by that. You're having great dinner with your significant other. You're laughing and you're going back and having a great, great dinner and you're going to do a movie after that. And you pick a horror movie. It's a different state. You paid someone to change your state. Or you're having a nice, elegant, romantic, you know, cerebral thing at dinner and then you go see a comedy. Change the state. You go, you go to Disney World and you get on a roller coaster to do what? Change your state. Entertainment and edginess is really about changing states. So when I say edge, I mean take me from one emotional state to another one quickly. So we have used B, big fat claim, explain example. Big fat claim, explain example. We come prepared and we have this host. Make sure if you can, listen to the show in advance. Know something about the host. Know something about their approach. Use something about their show and their audience to endear yourself quickly. The other thing, keep in mind that you are part of the fabric of the show. You're a record to them. So that means that they want to create their own state changes with you. And so oftentimes they will set you up and throw you off kilter. Be ready for that. Now, the experts who are good at being guests on shows have a bridging technique. And so, and you see it all the time, you just take it for granted. And the bridging technique is basically they'll throw you a question or say something, answer their question as much as possible. You may want to use an illumination technique, which is kind of direct the answer in a direction you want to go, but then use a bridge like, in the meantime, or in fact, and then go to the direction you want, or Interestingly, interest, interestingly enough, go in another direction or use uh, things like it's important. Now you've, you've answered the question then you say it's important to understand. And then you get back to wherever you were in big fat claim, explain example and get back on track. So have a strategy to to expect derailment and have a plan to get back on track. So you can make sure your agenda, your agenda gets covered and also the radio host agenda gets covered at the same time. Excellent point. Big Fat Claim, Explain, Example. Big Fat Claim, Explain, Example. Good for radio and probably good for our conversations in the hall at NSA events. Let's see, what will be my Big Fat Claim for NSA this year? 
Part of the annual convention this summer will be a track dedicated to our growing million-dollar speaker group. Steve Seabold is running that track this year and has some great things planned for our members with businesses generating $1 million in revenue or more per year. Steve, give us a quick peek into what you have planned and if an NSA member qualifies this group, what they need to do next. Well, as you know, we've got the most successful, some of the most successful speakers in the world uh, that are members of NSA come into this, this session, Bill, and it's going to be fantastic. One of the speakers we're bringing in is from an outsider from the group. He's one of the most successful PR agents for professional speakers, and he's going to talk about how he's gotten some of his clients in front of 40 and 50 million people on television in a single year, which he's won numerous awards for uh, all, over the, all over the country. Pretty amazing. Come join us in Anaheim. All you have to do is send me an email at steve, steve at govsebold.com, at steve at g-o-v-e-s-i-e-b-o-l-d.com, and say that you want to be a part of the Million Dollar Speaker Group. You'll have to submit your financials to the National Speakers Association. It's going to be completely confidential, but it's going to be well worth doing this because you're, what you're going to learn in this session, in, the, in these three days, with some of the most successful speakers in the National Speakers Association worldwide is just going to be fantastic. You're going to, you're going to learn how to make more money, be more efficient in your business, and all the good things that all of us are looking for from NSA. Thank you, Steve, for taking the reins of leadership this year. Let's fill the room with our most successful speakers. Hi, I'm Terry Brock, and today we've got a special treat for you as we talk to one of the greats of NSA and the speaking profession, and that is Brian Tracy. He joins us now. Brian, thanks for being with us. Pleasure, Terry. It is good to have you here. Now, you've been in uh, speaking for how many years now? It's 30 years now. 30 years. Well, you've seen a lot of changes in technology particularly. I'd be interested in seeing what you're seeing, uh, how it's changed, and what's working well for you today. Well, you know, they say in French, uh, le plus le change, le, le plus la même chose. The more the change, the more things are the same. Uh, nothing will ever replace the quality speaker on their feet, delivering in a way that's entertaining, educational, motivating, uh, funny, moving, and so on. Nothing will ever replace that. Everything in technology that we've used for 30 years, and we're very current with technology, is to get to that point. And nothing replaces it. We just heard the speaker talk today about death by PowerPoint. As people thought that PowerPoint, well, that's the key. You've got to get everything on PowerPoint. But the fact of the matter is, and I learned this recently, it's wonderful, is that the spoken word connects with the heart, but the PowerPoint only connects with the head. And if you rely too much on PowerPoint, what happens is you don't connect with the audience. They say, oh, that's a very interesting point. They don't say, wow, what a great speech. Because it's only the words coming from the emotions and the heart and the conviction of the speaker that count. Exactly. It was like Cicero we talk about who had men move to march. I don't know what his PowerPoints were like, but I think it was more of the ideas he had. Yes. So when I began, the only way that I could sell was, first of all, I advertised. And when I spent all my money advertising and nothing had happened, I went out and knocked on doors and sold personally. And you had to sell basically head-to-head, knee-to-knee, one person at a time to come to my seminars. And then I would go and give the seminars. And then after I'd given the seminars, I would go and serve the coffee. And then I'd go back to the front of the room and give the seminar. I would do 100% of it. I'd sell during the week, give the seminars on the weekend. Then one day someone said, could I get this on? audio. And I said, sure, I'll do that someday. Then somebody else asked it. So I had someone sit in this seminar 
and record it with a Morantz. And they just put it on and off between changing flip chart pages and so on. We took that, it's called The Psychology of Achievement. We cleaned it up. It became the best-selling audio program of its kind in history. Psychology of Achievement, 27 languages. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we've upgraded it and smoothed it out since then. And then we uh, started to put these programs onto video. And now the video programs are used worldwide as training tools. Then we created workbooks to go with the video. And then we created leaders' guides and facilitators' guides to train people to train people with the video. And, and then we reproduce the programs onto audio again. And now what we do is we have our own studio. Jumping ahead 30 years, we have our own film studio in our own offices where we can shoot the same quality that we used to have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in television stations for. And we can set up the whole studio for $15,000. Two cameras with uh, teleprompters, with uh, mixers, with um, backgrounds. Uh, it's the most phenomenal thing. I have people from 50 miles around come and use our studios to shoot their stuff which then goes out online to hundreds of thousands millions of people so now all of our promotion is online and I will shoot a video explaining an upcoming program or book or something else and we will send it out people will click on it they will watch it they'll click below they'll order it um, we have an active we have two people who work actively on Facebook and on Twitter and uh, on a whole series of other active um, social media sites to keep the name out there, keep the word out there. So you're using current technology for promotion. Yes, and the, the main thing is to keep your name known, get people to remember you, think about you. I publish four books a year. Uh, and I do full promotions of all different publishers. And I do full promotions on them, and they're published worldwide. So now I speak overseas. I've spoken in 57 countries now overseas, primarily because they have published my books. The books have become big sellers. People have booked me to go and speak in those countries. Where do you, as the veteran that you are, and the magnificent career success that you've had already, where do you see us going in the next uh, few years in speaking and communication? Well, Neil Cabin once said that really good speaking is edutainment. And I always like that. It's edutainment. In other words, you're teaching people valuable things that can enhance the quality of their lives and their work, and you're teaching it in an entertaining way that sticks. And that means that you have to keep current. If you're going to speak on goal setting or time management or customer service, you've got to be current with everything that's going on in that field so that every talk you give is a living talk. It's a little bit different. It adds on something. Sometimes I'll give a talk, and it'll, I will mention, in five or ten minutes of the talk, I'll discuss an article in the Wall Street Journal that I read in the room before I came down. Uh, I was just giving a talk for 2,000 people two days ago, and I had just read a really good article on gratitude in Reader's Digest before I came down. So I talked to them about this article and how well, this person was going through every kind of turmoil, and they just decided to practice gratitude every single day by writing a single note. And everybody wrote that down. Just say thank you, written or live, to everybody uh, on a daily basis. And it's amazing. It'll totally transform the person you are in the inside and change the results you get on the outside. And they said afterwards, it's one of the best talks that they ever had. And that, that was part of it. Excellent. Brian Tracy, you have helped so many people, millions of people, and myself included. So thank you very much for all you've done. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Terry. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Terry, for tracking down Brian Tracy. Brian clearly is a role model for many in this business. As you may recall, one of my goals for VOE this year is to find NSA members with very successful business models who may be flying a bit below the radar at NSA. Well, I found another one in Marty Grunder. Marty is a down-to-earth, humble guy who's built a couple of very successful businesses. With me today is Marty Grunder from Dayton, Ohio. 
Marty's been a member of NSA for about four years, but he's been speaking professionally since 1994. And Marty's built two very successful businesses, and today we're going to learn a little bit about both of them. Marty's book, The Nine Super Simple Steps to Entrepreneurial Success, was named the Business Book of the Year in 2003 at the Independent Publishers Book Awards. So, Marty, welcome to VOE. Thanks for having me, Bill. You bet. So, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about what led you into the speaking business. Uh, what, what got you started in business in the first place? Tell us about that. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I uh, bought a lawnmower uh, at a garage sale for $25 and started Grunder Landscaping Company. Um, did that all through high school and all through college, and uh, today it's a multi-million dollar business based in Dayton. We're actually the largest landscape contractor in Dayton, Ohio. Um, was fortunate to receive a, a lot of national awards for our entrepreneurial endeavors, and after received a couple of those, um, from the state of Ohio and the Small Business Administration, when I was giving acceptance speeches, there were people in the audience came up and said, could you come give that exact speech to my company? And I said, sure, and I realized it was like a lot of natural uh, born entrepreneurs, you see an opportunity, you try to turn it into a business and make money, and that's what I did. Yeah, now, uh, we don't want to soft pedal your success because I think when you were in college, you we're earning like $300,000 a year? Yeah, it's, I mean, now when I look back on it, I see it was really pretty crazy. But by the time I was a senior at the University of Dayton, we were grossing close to $400,000 a year with, you know, three trucks mowing lawns and doing landscaping. Wow. So that's quite an education, isn't it? It was. It was a, it was a wonderful opportunity. That's great. And and now your sales about $4.5 million? About four and a half, yeah. Right. And I know you have a vision to... Uh, to build your business to about $10 million and yes, sell sir, it, right? Yes, sir. That's right. Yeah, that's what we'd like to do. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. But uh, you got bitten by the speaking bug. Uh, t- tell me, how you, how you how do you manage two thriving businesses? I, I mean, I'm for me, it's enough just the right. one. <laughs> right, right. How do you do two? Well, first of all, what, what's really interesting, Bill, and I think most of the people listening to VOE will identify with this, what I speak on is actually what I do during the day at Grunder Landscaping Company of two separate companies. So... When I go out of town to speak on leadership, small business issues, management, motivation, marketing, I'm speaking from the heart. It's what I was doing last week. It may have been what I was doing earlier that morning. I have a tremendous team of people at at the Grunder Landscaping Company, and so I'm able to leave. Now, for me to sit here and say, oh, well, the business runs without me, eh, that's that's not what goes on. But I've got a sustainable model that I'm not there pulling every level and switch, and that's the things that I teach from the podium when I speak. So what have been the benefits of having this other business in conjunction with your speaking business? And, and should other speakers think about having another business besides the speaking business? I, I think, you know, relative to what's going on in the economy of late, I'm really glad I had a landscaping company because I'm like a lot of speakers. They're, they're not having conferences. I have other avenues in my speaking business that, that bring revenue in beyond just the speech. So I'm in pretty good shape. Um, for me, I, I think that m- maybe another way to look at it, Bill, is that if if you're not a speaker and you're very successful in a particular business in a niche, you have an opportunity to teach others in that industry how to run their business better, and that's exactly what I do. Mm. So they both feed off each other. When I go out of town to speak, I normally take one strategic project with me on the plane that has to do with Grunder Landscaping Company, and I'm working on that. Um, I guess the other thing is I think if you really have your core values aligned properly and you're speaking from the podium from the heart, 
every time you speak, there's that subconscious is saying, now, Marty, you're telling these people how to lead. You're telling these people that your actions mean more than your words. When I go back and check back in at the landscaping company, I'm reminded of what I shared yesterday in Denver, Colorado, or Los Angeles, California, and I actually think they've helped each other. Mm. And so you have kind of this this laboratory of your own business where you try out these ideas that you're yeah, also you're, teaching others. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, of late with the economy, I have a talk called How to Lead in Lean Times. It's the things that I've been doing to try to keep our operation together, and it's worked. Right. Good. Uh, sounds like it makes you a better speaker. I think it does. Yeah. Um, I'm probably more at ease speaking out of town than, than I am in front of my own people. I think we're all kind of that way. Mm. But it has absolutely made me a better speaker in terms of being aware. I'm a teacher when I leave Dayton, Ohio, and I go back, and I'm still teaching, but I'm, it, it, I think what you said there, a laboratory is a very good analysis of it. It gives me an opportunity to test these things and to see how they work. And, and maybe more importantly than anything else, when I go to the podium, I have credibility because this is what I'm doing on a daily basis. And I think it tends to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to listen to this guy right. because he's running the business right now. He, he knows what it's like to meet payroll, to hire people, to deal with an angry client, so on and so forth. So when we uh, met earlier and we prepared for this program, you told me a little bit about the success that you had in creating uh, relationships with other speakers uh, that has actually led to business. Yeah. So what are some things have you done there? Maybe we can glean some ideas. Gosh, Bill, I, um, Mark Mayberry, who's a longtime member of NSA, I, I owe him a lot of thanks for getting me involved in NSA. He kept telling me I had to join. I didn't listen to him for a while. And I joined, and I, and I will tell you that being a part of NSA has moved my speaking career forward. Um, there, there's an adage uh, that I try to live by. I always try to go to the top. I try to find out who are the most successful people in the particular business that I'm in and spend some time with them. It would be like if you know we all were driving to Miami, Florida. I want to I work with the person that's already in Miami, Florida on the beach. I'm back up in Tennessee. I'm driving. I can see them. I see where they're at. I'm going to get there. Mm. And they can call me back and say, hey, look out for this detour. Look out for this wrong turn. Um, I have a mentor in Chicago that runs the, one of the most successful landscaping companies in the United States. He's my mentor. In terms of the speaking business, you know, I've been blessed to, to have a, a friendship and a mentoring relationship with, with people like Mark Sanborn. Um, you know, Mark Mayberry has been very helpful to me. Uh, Dr. John Maxwell, a, a tremendous speaker, has been an enormous influence on me and spent a lot of time with me uh, helping, helping me get better. Um, I think NSA is a wonderful place for that. And I know when I first came to my first conference, I was the little guy in the back of the room that didn't have a lot of confidence. Yeah, I could put on a good show when I go up to speak, but I really didn't have much confidence sat in the back. And I sought out some of those winners, and it's made an enormous difference. Mm, that's great. That's what NSA is all about, clearly. So let's move on to your business model a little bit. Like many successful experts who speak, You've chosen to build a reputation within a niche. Talk to our members about the benefits of working a niche. Uh, this is, there's a wonderful book by Al Reese called Focus. Um, it's a great book, and, and I've read it many times. And I think the tendency, I have this belief, Bill, that entrepreneurs' strengths are also their weaknesses. And at the end of the day, their success is ultimately determined by their ability to manage those. Entrepreneurs are very creative people. We want to continue to try new things. We're always on the lookout. But that can be a weakness when you don't spend enough time in something developing it. And if there's one thing I've seen from NSA, the best speakers, the most successful ones, are the ones that get into a category and own it. 
And even when they know they own it, they continue to own it and they don't get out of it. They stay in there. So for me, in the green industry, I'm a very recognizable person in there in the, in the area of marketing and management, leadership, those type issues in the green industry. Um, that's where 80% of my business comes from. I do some keynotes and some other things for some publicly traded companies. I do have a keynote talk that I give. Um, and I am of late branching into other companies and other industries that provide services for homeowners because that's what a landscaper does. So I've done some work with plumbers, electricians, pool builders, remodelers, home builders, and the, and the like. But for the most part, I've stayed in that niche. And I often tell people when I'm speaking about the power of them staying in a niche. And I liken it to if you need your knee operated on, you don't go to the general practitioner that also works on, you know, acne and 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 everything else. You go to that person. Um, if you've got a problem with your heart, you want an expert on hearts, not the general practitioner. And and I think when you specialize in something, you you get in that niche, you become the expert on it, you become the go-to guy. And if you're good enough, I have a belief that the groups will find the money to pay you to come in for that enormous amount of expertise if you're known as number one. So I'm, I'm a pretty big believer in getting in that niche and staying in it. I'm curious in the work that you do, um, how much is uh, your speaking when someone has a conference and they want you to come speak in the conference versus they want to build something around you? They want to bring you in specifically to work with their their folks. I, I do two types of things. I either have a green industry related company that sponsors me to come in and put on a workshop or I do a keynote where I'm either paid by an association or I have sponsors in the green industry that will pay me and come in and speak. So it's a little bit of both. And then I also do my own seminars. Tell me how the sponsorship works. Well, the sponsorship works, and I think this is actually some good advice for, for the VOE listeners. Um, the day of just having a magazine ad for your product, if you're if you're a company that's selling things, or one form of advertising to try to get someone's attention to do business with you, those are over. We we live in a world where there, where messages are getting fired everywhere. So what I found with some of these sponsors, they're willing to to pay me to go in and speak to their clients. So they will put on regional seminars where I'll come in and speak. And the concept's pretty simple, and it's something that I think the listeners could pitch to some sponsors. That is, hey, listen. I'll come in, I'll do a specialized uh, workshop for your for your clients. We'll teach them how to run their business better. Guess what? We run their business better. They're going to buy more product. You're going to have some loyalty. I'm going to back that up with a monthly email for you. I'm going to have them send a, uh, we're going to send uh, uh, an MP3 once a month that we record that's specific to the industry. I've had great success doing that. Um, I've been surprised that no one else has come forward to try to do something like that in my particular industry. I think if it's working in the green industry, probably would work in a lot of others. So basically what you're doing is helping these companies who want to reach landscapers and yeah. uh, associated uh, companies uh, and, and build value so that they will choose them to, uh, to work with. Right. So you're, you're that value builder. Right. And all through my talk, you know, I'm mentioning the product when it's appropriate or I'm showing how to do it. They bring their sales rep in. They, enter, they mingle with them at lunch. I have had an enormous amount of success doing that. I would think any... NSA member could look to who is trying to reach That's exactly right. the audience and will they pay you to That's be right. part of that And then you have to think about what's my angle that I can present to them that'll be unique like anything else we've talked about in NSA and, and it's worked very well for me. Like many members in NSA, your, your speaking drives 
uh, the rest of your business. It does. Right? It's the main driver. It does. Uh, why is it important for, for any small business owner to know the main driver of their business? You know, there's just the economics of it, the, the finance side of it, to know where you put money in, where your greatest ROI, you need to know that. I mean, that's a, to me, that's a basic building block to any successful endeavor. Um, you have to be measuring uh, the results that you're getting from your particular marketing endeavors or the ways that you're trying to fill up your funnel with prospects and leads. For me, speaking is wonderful. About halfway through my talks, I'll say, if you've enjoyed what I have to say and you have a group or an organization that you think might appreciate my message, I sure would appreciate the referral. I send around a sheet so I gather every email address in there and I get them to opt in and then I mail them a, a weekly great idea that's promoting my other stuff. It's mostly information, very subtle marketing, but that's how I can fill that funnel up and that's how I can get my name out there and, and meet people. But understand about 70 to 80% of my events are in the green industry. Mm -hmm. So I already have, you know, they know me a little bit. It's not like they're getting bombarded by some guy and it's in a completely different industry. Um, so that that's worked quite well for me. So let's talk a little bit about your product service mix. Tell me the different ways that you generate revenue for your speaking business. Well, the, the speaking business is one of the ways that I generate uh, income. The other ways that we do, I do webinars, and mm -hmm. I do webinar. I do my own webinars. I actually uh, have customized some webinars for some of these sponsors that we that we spoke about, where I'll actually put on a webinar for their client. In the last year, with, with travel expenses and everything else and speakers hurting, I've done remarkably well with webinars. I, I did about 10 of them in 2009, and in 2010, we'll do about another 10. And for what they are, they've been pretty successful. Um, I found that they're difficult. You're, you're talking to no one. You're staring at a screen. They're, they're very tough. But once you get the hang of it, that's another thing you can put in your arsenal. Um, I've developed some MP3s. You can download them off my website. I've got them on CDs. That's another way. Um, I've had uh, very successful accountability groups that I've put together where I coach and my clients have unlimited email access to me. I speak with them on the phone once a month and basically they're getting what Grunder Landscaping is all about without the franchise fees. And those have been very successful for me. And then I put on my own seminars, which I call a big event, and we do those once a year where all these people that I've been communicating throughout the course of the year with the weekly email, the webinar, the, the informational products, all those things will join for kind of a summit for three days. And I've had some pretty big paydays doing those events. How many people come to those events? Well, the last couple of years it's been off, but I've had as many as 250 at an event. Wow, for yeah. three days. For three days, yeah. Beautiful. All landscapers. So talk to me a little bit about the synergy that, that takes place in having all these different ways of touching your your clients? Well, I have a funnel, and, and the first funnel is, you know, to get an email address and to have them to opt in to where I can keep in touch. And then I make sure once a week I come into their world for about a minute, two minutes with something extremely valuable that'll help them. And the offers are down below, so I'm not hitting them with a totally commercial thing. It's at the bottom. But everything is trying to sell the next one. The, the ultimate thing that I have at the bottom of my funnel is the personal one-on-one -on -one consulting and coaching. It's very lucrative for so that's me. That's your highest level. That's my highest level. Right. Right. Everyone goes through the funnel in different ways. I yes. Suspect. And it's all working towards that. Like somebody may say, hey, you ought to sign up for Marty's great idea. They start getting that. 
then I pitch them a webinar. I'm, I'm even going to do a free webinar later in the year just because I want to use it as marketing. I want to see what will happen. Maybe I'll get some people that didn't want to pay the 79 to 149 for the webinar and say, wow, Marty's doing a free one. And at the end of that free webinar, I'll pitch a bundle for the next five webinars. Mm. Um, but there, I'm always trying to sell the next thing. And the other thing that we do that, that I think would be valuable to share is that I write out my marketing plan for the whole year. So I know what I'm doing with every product, webinar, seminar, and all that. And we start promoting that well in advance. It's not like we wake up on a Friday and say, hey, we're going to... We're gonna let's do a webinar in three weeks and try to pull it together. And when I say we, my my speaking business is myself and a full time assistant. That's it. It's just two of us. Wow. So you really do have uh, your whole year laid out ahead yeah. of time. Yes. And it probably makes it a lot easier to execute. Well, it does. And then I have another gentleman that was the best student I've ever had, and I've hired him as a subcontractor mm-hmm. to help me put on seminars and help me do this as well. You've got a very good-looking, well-functioning website. What have you learned about building such a nice site? Oh, I appreciate the compliment. I mean, I look at my website and think it already needs to be <laughs> reworked and well, updated. I think everybody experiences yeah. that, but it is really a nice-looking website. Well, thank you. Um, we did put a lot of time and, and money and effort into it. it. We try to sell speaking off of it. That's the number one thing hopefully you take away when you go to the website. Um, what I found is that about every three years, you almost need to, to give it a major update. And you have to constantly be looking at something there that makes the visitors want to come back. You know, my whole thing is a niche. I I don't want these people going anywhere else. So I try to keep it updated with new information. I do try to do some free downloads and things that are beneficial to to people in my niche. And we try to keep it fresh. And, and, you know, to be be honest with you, Bill, I probably do what everyone else is listening. I know who the most successful speakers are in NSA. I every month go on four or five different speakers' websites, mm-hmm. and I see what they're doing. Brian Tracy, a gifted speaker and teacher, I heard him say one time in a seminar, if someone else has done something you're trying to do, that's all the proof you need to believe that you can do it yourself. So I look at these other guys, I see what they're doing, and I say, okay, well, that looks like that idea has merit, and I log that away. Or sometimes if the idea is that good, I'll go and implement it right away with our webmaster. Just looking back uh, to the history of your speaking business since 1994, and you've really had a very successful business. We're not going to give numbers here, but I can attest that you've been remarkably successful uh, in terms of the income that you're, you're generating as well as the people that you're helping. What are some of the critical decisions you think you've made along the way that have built this successful business that you have? Since I'm in this niche and I understand it so well, I'm able to anticipate trends and what's coming up down the road. I mean, I could see, for example, in 2007 that there were some things coming down the road. So we immediately started switching more of a focus to what I'm teaching on, you know, how do you lead in lean times? Um, How do you sell things when things are very competitive? What do you do? Teaching an industry, the green industry, that that historically has not done a lot of planning, trying to show them how to plan. So um, that's been a good thing. And then trying to always see things from the customer's point of view. One of the things I love to tell my clients that you should always be asking the clients you're doing business with is what should we start doing, what should we stop doing, and what should we keep doing. And I'm constantly surveying my clients in my speaking business uh, and teaching business, what should we stop doing, what should we start doing, what should we keep doing, you know, what aren't we doing that we ought to be doing, what's keeping you awake at night. So what's on the horizon for Marty Grunder? What new products, services, uh, initiatives? I'm going to keep asking my clients, you know, what's their biggest problem? What's keeping them awake at night? 
and continue to, to try to be an expert in the area of management, marketing, and motivation uh, for green industry and other small business owners and continue to drive really hard on that. Um, you know, I had the one book. It's been fairly successful. It's in the United States, Indonesia, and China. I have a new book I'm working on on relationship selling that I'm excited about. I, I just want to do the best I can with the talents that, that I've been given and, and try to impact lives. I've never sat down, Bill, and said, okay, how much money can I make? I've always tried to say, how can I help a client and help them so much that they'd see such value in what I'm doing that, that the price wouldn't be an issue? And I still have a lot of work to do. I still have a lot to learn. There's people in NSA are doing things that just, I, it's hard for me to even believe. I mean, I know how hard I'm working. I'm nowhere near them. So I have something to shoot for. It's good. Yeah, well, you're, you're being very modest because I know the success you're having. Uh, so Marty Grunder, business and motivational speaker and president of Grunder Landscaping Company, thank you so much for your contribution to Voices of Experience. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Let me get this right. Marty was grossing close to 400000 a year while he was in college mowing lawns. Now that's impressive. You know, Marty, if this speaking thing doesn't work out for you, you can always get back behind the lawnmower. You'll never starve. Last month, I interviewed Nancy McKay from Vancouver, Canada. You may recall that Nancy has built a million-dollar consulting, coaching, speaking business. Last month, she spoke to us about the consulting part of her business. This month, she tells us more about her coaching and speaking models. With me again this month is Nancy McKay, president of McKay & Associates and co-author, with Alan Weiss, of the book The Talent Advantage. Last month, she described how she built a million-dollar consulting business. And this month, we'll talk about the coaching aspect of her business. So, Nancy, what came first, coaching or consulting? Consulting came first. Okay, and then so how did coaching evolve from that? I was doing a bunch of consulting work, and I was also doing one-on-one coaching, but I just used to call everything consulting. And then I remember reading about uh, the International Coach Federation, and I learned through a colleague of mine that there was a certification process, and there was this evolving language around coaching, and that was probably about seven or eight years ago. And I decided to get certified as a coach through the Coaches Training Institute, and that became a new language around what I was doing. But I'd been doing one-on-one working with clients early on. I just didn't call it coaching. And so do some of your consulting clients become coaching clients or vice versa? Tell me how that seems to work. Well, coaching is just part of an overall consulting toolkit, in, in my view. So if I'm doing one-on-one work with an individual, I call that coaching. And if I'm doing work with uh, organizational impact or project work or strategy work or team effectiveness, I call that consulting. That's how I differentiate. I see. And last time we talked, you you mentioned briefly about your decision to become a coach and consultant to CEOs, that you wanted to focus on the C-level part of organizations. Tell us more about that decision process. Why did you do it? How is it working? How has it benefited you from, from that kind of focus? I made that decision because I thought, what is the biggest impact I can have at the individual level, the team level, the organizational level, and that if I would be working with the CEO and also board members because they have a very important impact on uh, the success of businesses, I thought if I work with CEOs primarily, then that'll be the biggest contribution because if I can help a CEO become a better CEO and be more effective, then that will uh, lead to a positive impact on the rest of the organization. And so that's why I made that decision. And how has it worked? It's been fabulous. 
because it's exactly what's happened is I uh, set that intention and so then I asked uh, to get referrals and introductions to CEOs and started working with them and that that uh, was I don't know maybe 10 years ago and that led to more and more referrals to CEOs and and uh, it's been a great way to have a very big impact on organizations. So one of the things that occurs to me is that reaching CEOs just getting a hold of CEOs in the first place and then coming across to them in a way that's credible, that, that's going to gain their attention, probably not an easy thing or not an easy thing for a lot of our members. Tell us about that. How do you reach these people? And when you do get in front of them, either on the phone or in person, what do you talk about? What are some of the types of questions you ask to, to get their interest so that they'll continue to have a conversation with you? The most important way to reach CEOs is referrals by other CEOs. That is the best referral you can get into a CEO because then once you connect with that CEO, uh, their colleague has already, their peer has already established the credibility for you. And then in my view, working with CEOs is really about uh, stepping into their shoes and listening to what their key issues and challenges are and doing the very best you can to help them and add value and be as succinct as possible because they've got a lot on their plates and uh, to demonstrate very quickly that if they were to work with you, then they'd be a lot better off and so would their organizations. So if someone's just starting out in coaching or consulting or even speaking, any, any business really, and they want to reach CEOs, you say referrals, but if you don't know any to begin with, how did you step into that initially to meet one or two so then you could start getting referrals from them? Well, if you work at the executive level, then it's a matter of asking that person that you're working with to say, how about introduce me with your CEO, uh, to your CEO, because uh, I think I can, you know, add a lot of value and help your CEO be even more successful when, when you start to hear about what are some of the organizational issues and challenges through an executive or someone at a lower level or what have you. So it's really, you know, whether you're working with an HR executive or a COO or a CFO or whoever it is that you're working with, uh, then when when an opportunity comes up where they mention, oh, gosh, you know, my CEO's got some challenges around this piece, then that's the opportunity to say, you know, by the way, if I were to connect and the two of us perhaps could meet with your CEO, uh, I may be able to assist. So there's that referral thing again. So really you, you use referrals to work your way up the organization to get introduced from perhaps a lower executive level to a higher executive level. Yeah, when I was first getting started, that's, that's exactly how it worked. Beautiful. And even now, it works that way. I'm just saying that the best referral is CEO to CEO referral because that's a peer referral, which is the, the golden referral in my view. Mm -hmm. Now, next time we get together, we're going to talk uh, more about your coaching forums your CEO coaching forms, I should say, but I know that has become an instrumental part in in your business and, and your client acquisition model. Can give us a, an executive summary of that and how that relates to this coaching? And when we get together next time, we'll go into more detail. The uh, Most of the work that I do currently is I run eight CEO forms across Canada and involving over 100 CEOs. And I also run executive forms involving over 50 executives. And so a lot of my coaching is actually as part of the forums, which is really uh, each forum has 12 CEOs and they meet six times a year. And then I work with them as groups to help them bring their issues and challenges to the table and become better CEOs. And then outside of those meetings, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching 
up to four hours a year with each one of those 100 CEOs and 50 executives. And so a lot of my coaching really is with those people that are in my CEO and executive forums. So that's where a lot of your business comes from, and it, and it sounds again like there's a tremendous synergy, as Anito Kubain would say, an intentional congruence uh, between all that you do here, that the speaking helps promote the forums, it helps promote the coaching, helps promote the consulting. They, they feed off each other. Is that a fair statement? They do, you know, because I'm building a community of CEOs and executives, and they can help each other through peer coaching, and I can help them through one-on-one individual coaching as an external coach, and that's the, the business model that I've evolved to. Tell me how the coaching, the consulting, the CEO forms have made you a better speaker. The, the fundamental impact that all of these various approaches to coaching consulting is the stories. Because I have access to what are the key issues and challenges, in particular over the past year and a half with the dismal economy, what are these CEOs and executives really, what are their fundamental issues and challenges? And then to be able to speak to audiences about these are the key things that are really big challenges and how they're overcoming them or learning from their mistakes or what have you, that, that I think has been the biggest impact. So it's a real-life laboratory. It's not just you on the platform speaking. There's, there's a huge real-life laboratory behind you that is feeding you with information, ideas, stories that must lead to you becoming a better speaker. Yeah, absolutely, and, and for people to see that they're not alone. You know, it's lonely at the top with these senior executives and CEOs. And so when I speak and I tell these stories, everybody's going through this. It's just if you don't talk to others and learn from others, it's a pretty lonely existence and a tough one, especially when the economy's not so great. This is a wonderful model that you're, uh, that you're outlining here, and I think many NSA members could take advantage of this, even if their mix looks different, maybe a lot more speaking, but still can have some of this coaching, consulting, uh, forums, CEO forums, or other types of forums involved. I'm curious, what has been your toughest coaching assignment I know coaching is not always an easy thing. I've certainly done it and had my challenges with it. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I can remember this so vividly in my mind. One of my CEO clients to me uh, said to me, I, I really need you to coach my COO. He's a real uh, bully and he's a real problem. And uh, we really need to address this because it's causing a lot of mistakes and risks for the organization. And it's you know, reached the board level now. And so I need you to work with this COO. And I remember saying to the CEO, well, okay, I'll talk to him and I'll see if he's willing to accept feedback, if he's willing to go through the journey. And, and you know, if I think that uh, we can make some progress here, I'd be happy to help in any way that I can. And I just remember walking into the coaching session with the CEO once we agreed to do some work together. And in the first 10 minutes, I gave him some feedback. I'd done a 360 coaching assignment with him and I gave him some feedback around his strengths and what he could do to improve and of course one of the key opportunities to improve was he needed to stop yelling and screaming and and being a bully and uh, he just lost it he just just went on and ranted that this didn't make any sense and this wasn't the case and and uh, that was uh, a pretty tough assignment and I I handled it by saying to him you know what I think probably what we need to do is take a break and uh, come back in about 15 minutes when you've settled down and uh, perhaps we can complete the assignment uh, which we did but it was it was really tough did you ever get through to him did he remain defensive or did he open up at some point 
Yeah, after he had some time to, and then we discovered he had a, well, he illustrated he really did have an anger management problem, and this was really the fundamental issue that we needed to work on. Once he had time, some cool down period, we managed to get through the coaching session, and uh, and then I followed up and I met with him and the CEO, and we put an action plan in place, and we got some, him some additional help, and and so you know he definitely made progress, uh, but it was painful. I can only imagine. Well, Nancy McKay, this is great. Uh, Nancy is a consultant, a coach, a speaker. Uh, she gets paid well to speak, but speaking is also a marketing tool for consulting, coaching, and her highly successful CEO forms. So next month, we'll learn more about these CEO forms. Nancy, thanks for being with us this month on VOE. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Nancy. You continue to impress me. Now it's time for our segment devoted to platform skills, featuring tips from our CPAEs. This month, I'm with lovable Lou Heckler, CSP, CPAE, and Cabot Award winner, or Uncle Louie, as I like to call him. Lou, tell me about how the best get better when it comes to platform skills, how the good get great, the great stay great, stay fresh. I think it comes from a couple of things, Bill, at least in my case. Um, first of all, I am an innately curious human being, and I am extremely curious about people who perform anything that they do at the very top level. So it means that every day is school for me. Whether I'm watching another speaker, whether I'm watching a dancer, a singer, frankly, a basketball player, anybody who's doing a remarkable job at what they do, particularly those that surprise me at how well they're doing the job, because I think they're in what I would think of as being a relatively mundane, common job, but they've made it uncommon. I always feel like I can watch something there and see is there, is there anything there that I could borrow? Is there anything there that I could emulate? But particularly, I think I've gained probably the most from being a, a great fan of the Broadway stage. I love to go to Broadway shows. I love to watch performers. And I was thinking, when you told me you wanted to do this interview, I was thinking about a show that was on Broadway a number of years ago called The Sisters Rosenzweig. And it had some big performers in it. It had uh, Hal Linden, who used to be a Barney Miller, remember him, big, tall, good-looking guy. Mm -hmm. It had Michael Learned, who was uh, the mom on the old television show, The Walton. She's also a very tall, very statuesque, very beautiful woman. And it had Linda Lavin in it. Linda Lavin, who played Alice. Do you remember that on mm -hmm. TV? Linda Lavin is a pixie. She's about five feet tall and slim. And she played a character in the play called, as she called it, Gorgeous. That was actually her name, not just who she was, but gorgeous. And be, even though she was the most diminutive person on the stage, when she was on the stage, you looked at nobody else. Hmm. And I found myself doing that and thinking, why is it? Why, what is she doing? And what she was doing was this. She was 100% committed to a character named Gorgeous. So that as she walked, as she gestured, as she spoke, as she interacted with people, she was not being Linda Lavin anymore. She was being someone who took the name Gorgeous and made that exactly who she was. And it just reminded me that when I'm up in front of an audience, whether I'm telling a story, making a point, giving an introduction, emceeing, whatever it might be, I have to be that day, that moment, 100% committed. I can't be thinking about what I did last week. I can't be thinking about next week. I can't be wondering about, did I turn off my phone? Did I, do I have my boarding pass for my flight tomorrow? Whatever. 
And so I think if you watch people who are at the top of whatever they do, there's always, always a clue there for us that we can adapt or adopt and make our own. And the second thing I think that I do with some frequency is I I read, I've talked about this before with uh, chapters and so on, I read an awful lot of fiction. And I think a lot of speakers don't. I mean, we we read our business magazines, we read our Fortune and our Business Week and all those sorts of things, or we read maybe uh, topic area magazines in the areas we speak, in your case, the financial services industry, somebody else's case might be dental or medical or whatever. But what I find about fiction is it puts concepts in my brain, in my subconscious brain, that really help me think of how to describe something later when I'm going to be giving a description of something in front of a room. Not that I'm going to plagiarize or use their language, but I'm just going to look at when I read a passage, if it really strikes me, you know, if I find myself kind of perking up and sitting up and going, wow, then I go back and read it again and sometimes again and sometimes again and say, what did she just do? What did he just do? And is there some way I could go to school on that? So I think it's, it's those two things for me at least. Lou Heckler, thank you very much. Pleasure, Bill, always. You know, every time I talk to Lou Heckler, I get something new. I love his perspective on this business. Thank you, Uncle Louie. Next up is Jeff Davidson, MBA, CMC, to give us some ideas to help us separate ourselves from work for a little downtime. Jeff Davidson, one of the things that came up in the study was when to shut the motor off, when to call it a day. Many speakers... NSA members work from home, they have family playing in the next room or wishing they were there. So some of the statements that came in on the study was, you know, it's cutting in on my, my work is cutting in on family time, feeling like I should be there with my family more. Uh, I'm not being at peace when I'm away from work. So they make the decision to be with family, but then they're not finding that peace. They're still, I guess they have their brain in two camps at the same time. Mm. Talk to us about that. Let's start with people who work out of their homes, because that's probably harder than those who have drive time to get back home. If you work out of your house, then you need to let the others in your household know when you will be finishing work for that day. Because if you happen to come out the door that represents your office, and they see you, they may make the mistaken assumption that you are now available and you're not. You're simply out for the moment. Now, you can assign a regular time each day, I quit at 6, or you can make a varying time based on interviews you may have, based on client calls, you're waiting somebody from Japan, but let others in your household know when you're out. Nevertheless, because we're an association of overachievers, because we're an association of people who do get important emails at 10 in the evening, I can understand people's desire to want to sneak back into the office and take a look at email. I do it myself. So here are some of the ways you can get around that and still have the separation. Allow yourself a 10 or 15 minute period each night when you will come back in, make the check that you need to make to feel okay about your business. If it works for you and your family, suppose you all sit around the dining room table long after dinner and your son or daughter is doing homework, your spouse is working on something or reading a book, and you're sitting there with a laptop doing your work. It's not the essence of togetherness, but you all are there at the table. It has a lot more um, 
there are a lot more family benefits to that than if you're all in separate rooms doing your thing. All right, what about when you get home from an office? For most speakers, if the drive time is long enough, that gives you enough wind down time. Part of the problem is we pop in a wonderful CD or we listen to a radio broadcast, we get hepped up, we come home, we want to check email again, and even though we've had the separation during the commute, we haven't really left the office. So here again, let it be known to the kids, whomever, when I come home I need 20 or 30 minutes and then I'll be clear. So as long as you create these boundaries, it'll be okay. Now what about if you need to do something on Saturday or Sunday morning or at some odd hour because you have a request from a client? We all get these. We all get requests and it really makes sense to honor the request because we work so hard to get the client in the first place. Then have an IOU system. If you're going to watch a movie with your kid that night and something comes in and you just can't, and you don't want to do this often, but when something comes in and you just can't put it off, absolutely make a rain date and, and stick to it. None of this false kind of promise stuff. Kids know when they're being kind. Kids know when they're only getting partial attention. Let's address one last issue, which is feeling guilty when you're home and not doing work, feeling guilty when you're at work and not spending enough time at home, and so you have this cycle that never seems to end. You're never where you are. You're always concerned about the next thing. You're always concerned about the other camp, home or work, work or home. For people caught in that bind, I would suggest meditating. I would suggest visualization. I would suggest putting on um, relaxing music, a, a stroll around the block, something that creates the clearance. This is the Super Bowl of our life and the clock is ticking. Nobody is coming. Nobody is coming to give us this kind of instruction. If we don't carve out the time for ourselves at home, we can go our whole careers and wake up one day and have it almost be over and say, my goodness, why didn't I see it back then? These are the good old days we'll be thinking about 15 and 20 years from now. We've got to savor them. Your kid, if he's 10 or 15, is only going to be 10 for that one year and only 15 for that one year. We've got to savor the time now. And fortunately, everybody listening has the capability to make these distinctions. Thank you, Jeff, for this big wake-up call. I don't know about you, but I've been loving the Million Dollar Idea segments from members of our Million Dollar Speaker Group. This month, I have an idea for you from Roxanne Emmerich, CSP, CMP, CPAE. Most people know me as uh, an expert in banking and helping cultures transform within banking and performance um, transform. But over the last year, I've been working on taking that same developed full program that we have for them, which includes hundreds of videos, hundreds of teleseminars, a private pass area, templates, processes um, that are up there for the banking industry. And our banks came to us and said, would you please do this for our business clients because we wouldn't have so many bad loans if they just had this available. So we're creating a, a mini program for them that doesn't require as much coaching and, and different pieces, but still allows for, for that access for these other businesses because usually about 20% of my business year in year out has been outside the banking industry with large companies, small companies, 
in other industries, I haven't in the past had things I could give them to keep them going, and I've always felt like I was violating them as a result. So that, that's a, an area of huge shift for us. So is this something the banks are paying for in kind of a sponsorship value-added situation, or just letting these these people know about it, or a combination? Oh, that's a great question. Well, the banks that we have on are um, signed for a three-year program, and the vast majority of them extend beyond the three years. Many of them, our first clients, are still with us today. Um, so what we've given them is we give them certificates to a- attend certain seminars that we make available as one of the perks within the program. And now what we did is we offered them some free seminars for them to give to their business clients who then came to the seminar and said, well, how else can we get what the bank has? And so it's been a wonderful way to have our clients market for us. So what a wonderful way to take the incredible reputation you've established in a niche and that leverage that to other businesses and still keeping your bringing value to your niche clients. Exactly. Whether you work a niche like Roxanne or not, you can find out who your clients are trying to serve better and help them do that with your expertise. This will deepen your relationships with your clients and create a new revenue stream at the same time. Brilliant idea, Roxanne. Kristen Arnold is an MBA, CPF, CMC, and CSP. I also consider her one of my BFFs. But her biggest credential this year is PRES of NSA. As a professional speaker, we love to do the fun stuff, speaking in front of an audience, sharing our expertise and inspiration with the world. Unfortunately, for most of us, it's not so fun to do the back office mundane activities. But being good entrepreneurs, we buckle down and do that grunt work of mailing out packets of information, paying bills, and ordering supplies. That is, until we get big enough to be able to outsource the stuff we don't like to do to others, be it employees, virtual assistants, or bookkeepers, you are no longer the chief cook and bottle washer. Congratulations! But now you have other fingers in the pot, and with more fingers comes the opportunity for mismanagement. Several of my colleagues can tell you that they have lost money and tarnished their reputation because they didn't have adequate safeguards in place to keep from being shortchanged, cheated, or even embezzled. As an entrepreneur, there are a few things you can do to safeguard your assets. You can reconcile your bank statements every month. Yes, banks do make mistakes every month. Monitor your credit cards. You know, you can set up online alerts to let you know every transaction that gets processed through your credit card or your checking account. Establish spending limits for employees with check writing or credit card privileges. Establish a budget for the year based on your best guesstimate of your revenues as well as your normal expected expenses and other special projects you intend to pursue. You can also review your monthly financial statements, otherwise known as your P&L, your profit and loss statement, as well as your balance sheet. Even if these are very simple, they can help you see if something is not as it should be, especially in comparison with the previous months or year. There are other things you can do to make sure you have timely and accurate financial information so that you can make good business decisions. Consider tracking different revenue sources. Do you separate out products versus services you provide? Training from keynotes, online versus live? Consider allocating expenses to your different revenue streams to understand how much profit 
comes from each. Consider allocating time as well. What takes you more prep time or more travel time? And don't forget to consider intangibles. Which do you prefer to do? What makes your heart sing? Now, you may be thinking, Kristen, that sounds like a lot of work. Yes, it could be if you make it into a big science project. Don't recommend that. Keep it simple for your size of the business. At the minimum, take an hour each month to go over your financials. If you aren't reviewing them, well, then who is? Now, NSA is a bit larger of an organization. Our finance committee is intimately involved in developing and approving the budget each year. And the entire board of directors receives monthly reports comparing year-to-date actuals to the approved budget. We also have an audit committee that oversees the work the NSA management team does in order to safeguard our assets and ensure accurate and timely financial information. NSA also has an internal control document that outlines the separation of duties, the policies and procedures that ensure our monies are allocated and spent appropriately. The audit committee also oversees an outside audit or review of our financial procedures and policies each and every year. For NSA, it is a bit of a science project, but aren't you glad to know that somebody's looking at this stuff? I know I am. Back to you, Bill. Thank you, Kristen. So that's it for your May 2011 edition of VOE. Personally, I don't know how you could listen to all those segments and not come away with several ideas to implement right away. This is Bill Cates reminding you that ideas do not make you more successful. Only acting on ideas will make you more successful. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.